0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Dark Age Medicine, a combination episode that combines five episodes that focus upon leech books, health, and cures. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so we're going to start a short thematic series on Anglo-Saxon medicine, and this is all in response to a listener request made on the forums. So thank you very much for that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And before you fans of kings and war hit skip, consider this. Who are you most looking forward to hearing about from this era? If you're all about kings, my guess is that you're excited to hear about Alfred the Great. Did you know that he was sickly? Like, really sickly. So aren't you curious about what he had to deal with? I know I am. But members, before you listen to this episode, you might want to listen to the latest members-only episode on the development of Western science. I think you might find it helpful for setting the stage of this discussion. Okay, medicine. Let's put this in perspective, shall we? The oldest medical text is a clay tablet from Ur from about 4,000 years ago. Then we have the Karun papyrus, which was written in Egypt about 150 years later. And then there are the writings of Hippocrates from about 400 BC, And then following that, you had the Greek and Latin medical texts, and those really flourished. And the result of all this stuff is that we have a pretty good idea of what medical thinking was like in the Mediterranean from an early date. But what about other cultures? What about areas that weren't in the Mediterranean? Well, prior to 1100 CE, there isn't much information north of the Alps. Well, there isn't much for the cultures north of the Alps except for one, the Anglo-Saxons. This might surprise you, but the Anglo-Saxons wrote texts on medicine in both their native language as well as in Latin in the 10th century and beyond. And quite a few of those have actually survived. That alone should tell you how important medicine was to these people. We've lost so many manuscripts over the years, so to have over a thousand pages on medical matters written in Old English, that's a big deal. And considering how difficult it was to produce those texts and preserve them, Well, it shows how serious the business of medicine was to these people. And here's the kicker. Scholars argue that the older copies have actually been lost and that the Anglo-Saxons have been writing medical texts in their native language since an earlier time. Now, as we dive into this material, we're going to come face to face with yet another myth about the Anglo-Saxons. And frankly, regarding any people whose medicine doesn't flow from the Mediterranean schools directly. Namely, that the cures are nothing but a bunch of superstitious mumbo-jumbo. Now this is really an old and deeply ingrained bias, and so I'm going to do my best to disabuse all of us out of it. But before we get into the specifics of medicine and how it worked, and before we get to the part that I know you're waiting for, the magic, we should probably talk about the state of health. And as with most things from this era, we're going to be drawing broad generalizations over a wide span of time, but we're going to do our best. The first thing to look at are buried remains. And when looking at these sites, we see that there is a high level of infant mortality, a rather short lifespan in general, and many women dying young, often in childbirth. Bone and joint diseases were really common, with many people suffering from arthritis, rickets, rheumatism, and the like. Now a big contributor to health, and a contributor to poor health, is diet. Believe it or not, your mom was right when she told you that you needed to eat your vegetables but you also needed to eat a variety of other things too. There are all sorts of vitamins and nutrients that we need to stay healthy. And as you might remember from the episodes on food, not everyone had access to a complete and well-balanced diet. ML Cameron points out that deficiencies of vitamins A and C and deficiencies in niacin must have been so bad that they gave rise to skin and eye trouble. And when your body lacks appropriate nutrients, you're also more susceptible to disease. And don't forget that the common people were also working out in the elements, in tough conditions, and with clothing that might not have kept them perfectly warm. This also places stress on the body, which suppresses the immune system. So the Anglo-Saxons were, to put it lightly, not in the best of shape. And consequently, disease was not unknown to them. And with that in mind, let's quickly look over what the written sources tell us of their health and well-being. To start with, the Anglo-Saxons seem to understand that disease was communicable. There are references to, quote, flying venom, end quote, and that, quote, loathly one that roams through the land, end quote. I'm currently battling with that loathly one myself. And there seems to be a particular interest in dysentery, which would indicate that it was probably a serious issue for some communities. Liver fluke infections were also probably a problem, given the symptoms that we see reference to and the omnipresence of sheep in British rural life. And the references in medical texts that have survived seem to indicate that while they might not have known the precise biological mechanisms involved, they were all too aware of the symptoms of these diseases. There are also mentions of spring fever, which might have been some form of malaria, given that spring was when mosquitoes would be prevalent. Now this was before the fens were drained, of course, so mosquitoes were much more common. The Anglo-Saxons tried to preemptively treat the spring fever with betony, but it probably wasn't too effective. Now interestingly, malaria might actually account for at least some of the women who died while pregnant. You see, when a woman is pregnant, she loses iron to the fetus, which is normal and necessary. But if she becomes infected with malaria all of a sudden she's losing iron both to the fetus and the disease and she can easily become severely anemic which could be fatal and that could account for some of those deaths that we're seeing evidence of and actually there's a good chance that the lower classes were probably having a tough time getting enough iron into their diets during much of the year and that trouble with iron could have a cascading effect If a family is low on iron, they will be weakened and work in a diminished capacity, which won't do them any favors in the brutal Anglo-Saxon economy. The food tax and tithes would still need to be paid, which would mean the family would probably continue to be deficient in iron because they'd have to give an ever-increasing portion of the available food out to the taxes and tithes. They'd probably also have trouble with their spleens, which would mean that they'd have enlarged abdomens and trouble with their blood and that sort of thing. And all of this is without even bringing spring fever into it. Once that comes into the mix, good luck. However, if it got to the point where your spleen was enlarged, you did have one ray of hope. There was a remedy for that, and one that could probably help. They'd make a potion out of vinegar or wine, and then they would thrust a red-hot poker into it. They probably didn't realize that they were just using the potion to get iron into the patient's system. But that's exactly what was happening there. And it probably worked. Anyway, there are also serious troubles with the eyes. Of course, you'd have astigmatisms and poor vision, and those matters, while they're easily corrected now, would be much more problematic for the Anglo-Saxons. In fact, some of the remedies for poor vision were simply taking walks, rubbing your eyes, and drinking wormwood before meals. So chances are there were people who just toughed it out and dealt with poor vision. Though, if you had night blindness, you might be in luck. The treatment for night blindness was roasted buck liver, which would be high in vitamin A. And a vitamin A deficiency is a major cause of night blindness. So there you go, you actually have a working remedy. Anyway, there are also plenty of references to ocular conditions that seem to reflect some sort of infection or injury to the eyes, even eye worms. But if you think about it, it makes sense that there would be a lot of trouble with the eyes. Sanitation was not yet up to modern standards, and even in our modern day, people get pink eye. And the eye is an easy target for parasites. And we'll see later on that they did have some antibiotic treatments that might have helped a little bit with some infections. Now, there also were plenty of remedies for problems with the ears, including how to deal with worms and earwigs. So we can assume that ear trouble and deafness were issues for the Anglo-Saxons. And many of their treatments, some of which stem from Greek medicine, seem remarkably like those of my grandfather. Basically, apply heat. There are also plenty of remedies for joint and bone maladies, which mirrors what we've seen in skeletons we've found. There are also instructions on setting bone fractures and the like, all the sorts of things you'd expect to see out of a community that dealt with hard labor and occasional war. There were also cures for paralysis, but unfortunately, they would have done absolutely nothing other than waste time and possibly further injure the patient. We also see references to jaundice, which is really no surprise in a situation where there's a risk of severe malnutrition. And it looks like they were also dealing with pneumonia or some sort of pleurisy, which again, in that climate with those conditions, it's not too surprising. The point is that disease and ailments were a serious concern for the Anglo-Saxons in Britain. And while the treatments might not have always been effective or accurate, there were some cures that were remarkably spot on. All right, if there was medicine, and we know there was, then there must have been practitioners. But what did that look like? Who were these people and how did they get that position? In the U.S., you have to have a four-year degree, then go to medical school, then go to residency, pass exams, get licensed, etc., etc. There are plenty of hoops to ensure that a doctor has the minimum required knowledge in his or her area of practice. And so we can be reasonably sure that doctors know what a spleen does, are familiar with osmosis, and hopefully know a great deal more than that too. And in large part, that assurance is the result of the regulations that force potential doctors to overcome certain hurdles and enforce a certain level of uniformity in medical practice. And we all benefit from that. But that's a relatively new thing for us. It wasn't all that long ago that medical training generally was an unregulated apprenticeship and lecture system. And then in the 19th and 20th centuries, the Western world started to realize how crazy that was because you'd have entire lineages of doctors who were practicing medicine in medically unsound ways because that's what they were taught. And bad medicine was just continually passed down via poor medical schools, and I use that term loosely, or through poorly informed doctors instructing their apprentices who just soaked up the misinformation like a sponge. And in a situation like that, how do you modernize? How do you advance medicine? Well, in large part, you don't. After all, you're still living in the past and not availing yourself to the new techniques and cures that have been discovered and instead are learning something that quite possibly could be a hundred or more years out of date. So studies were carried out, reports were drafted, one of the most famous was called the Flexner Report, and it became very clear that this system had to go, and medical education needed to be regulated, forced to adhere to evidence-based science, which should seem obvious, but apparently wasn't, and kept current. Imagine that. There had to be a report issued before people started thinking, wow, we really should teach doctors to use the scientific method. And like I said, that's a relatively new thing. Many of the problems with medical education persisted into the 20th century. So I think that as we go forward, you're going to find that the medicine of your great-grandfather probably had a lot more in common with the Anglo-Saxons than we'd like to admit. Sure, he was probably less likely to die at the hands of his doctor due to crazy treatments or lack of sterilization, but the range of medically sound cures was still pretty low at that point. So with that being said, what was medicine like in the Anglo-Saxon era? Were there doctors as we think of them now? And if so, what did they know and how were they trained? Were women involved? And what role did they play? Well, let's try and cover some of those questions. So what do we know about these practitioners? Well, to be honest, not a lot. And that happens so often that I'm starting to think that I should have a sound effect for every time that we aren't sure about something in the Dark Ages, sort of like I had a sound effect for every time I said Praetorian Guard. Anyway, so our sources from this period are limited, but we do have some illustrations that show medics at work, and many of them are portrayed in classical dress. But not all of them. Some of them are in traditional Anglo-Saxon clothing. So what does this mean? Well, it might mean that many physicians were part of religious orders, but not all of them. And that would make sense. We have evidence that there were early medical texts that were either written in Latin or closely based upon cures that originally appeared in Latin text. And you might remember that the members of the church did keep certain aspects of education going following the collapse of the Roman system, and among the things that they saved was the ability to read and write in Latin, because it was important for their ability to read the Bible. So the medical texts from the continent that would have been written in Latin, well, it's probably best that they be interpreted by the community that was most likely to be able to read in Latin. And that would be the clergy. Also, the church's involvement can be inferred not just from the use of Latin in the illustrations that we've seen, but also from the fact that prayers and charms were featured in medical treatments, such as drawing crosses and sacred oil on the body. And those would be cures that the ecclesiastical orders would have been much more comfortable doing than the lay people. And also there are references by writers such as Bede to members of the church carrying out cures, though they were often liturgical in nature. And actually, there are records that indicate that some of the members of the clergy had quite an interest in medicine. For example, Chinaherd, the bishop from Winchester in the 8th century, wrote to the continent asking his fellow bishop to keep an eye out for books on medicine because he was having a hard time finding some of the ingredients referenced in the recipes he had access to. Apparently, the herbs and such weren't native to England. But as I said a moment earlier, it probably wasn't just the clergy. You see, medical texts weren't only written in Latin. The thing is that reading and writing in Latin wasn't really necessary for the general members of the community. They spoke their own language, and following the later reforms of education under kings like Alfred, the importance of reading and writing in English increased substantially. So if you wanted something that the lay people could understand and use in their own communities, a text written in Old English was the way to go. And it seems like the Anglo-Saxons did exactly that. In addition to recording local cures, there are also examples of medical texts that have been translated into Old English. And interestingly, the oldest surviving texts we have of medicine in the Anglo-Saxon era weren't written in Latin. They were written in Old English. And they were the most voluminous. Though we have to be careful about drawing too many inferences here, because there can be many reasons why English has the oldest and largest compilations of cures. This is an era of few records, so we really shouldn't assume too much. It might just be a misleading coincidence. But it does tell us something really interesting about the Anglo-Saxons, and not just the jingoism of locals using their own language. What I find so amazing is that it shows us that these people weren't just copying down cures. Consider that. They were translating the cures into Old English, because many of them were drawn from European cures that were written in Latin. That meant that the sources had to be read, thought about, and then rewritten in Old English. This isn't just a blind reproduction of Mediterranean medicine, but rather it's an indication of what the Anglo-Saxons thought about the medicine that was being practiced elsewhere, and it tells us, among other things, what they found to be useful. It's a small window into the minds of the educated members of Anglo-Saxon life, and we get precious few of those. Anyway... So before I started talking about languages and translations, I was talking about who was practicing medicine. Well, we can make a reasonable guess that there were both lay people and members of the clergy who operated as physicians in their communities. And who was treating you might well have depended on your station and also where you were located. So now that we've established roughly who might be treating you, we should probably ask the more important question. How good was that person's training? Well, it's hard to say. Bede makes reference to Greek medicine, and we know there were archbishops that came from the Mediterranean, such as Theodore, who had an interest in medicine and would have brought that knowledge with them. And it seems that Bede also had access to the writings of Isidore of Seville and Pliny, both of whom wrote about medicine, among other things. So there was knowledge there, if you knew where to look for it and if you were lucky enough to have the access. And of course, if we're going to talk about medicine in the Anglo-Saxon era, we've got to talk about Bald's leech book. Amusingly, Bald was just the owner of the book. Child wrote it. Though we can't say for sure if he was the person who compiled it, he might have just been the scribe. The whole thing is shrouded in mystery. Anyway, Bald's leech book provided a wide variety of cures that were translated into Old English, and it displayed what was, in large part, the best that Europe had to offer. The first two parts are organized into internal and external problems, which is pretty unique for the time and manages to blend European and African cures surprisingly well. Though the difficulty the Anglo-Saxons probably ran into with using those cures is, naturally, the availability of materials, which was what Chinner was complaining about. But in general, the first two sections are a stunning compilation of medical thought for the time. And some of the treatments, such as the approach to gangrene, might possibly display an access to rare continental cures. And then you have the third part of the leech book, which was tacked on to the end sort of like an appendix. And this contained a number of cures that were not translations from continental thought, but rather were local cures in medicine. And as you might imagine, the local cures involved quite a few charms and magic. And to be perfectly honest, my favorite part is the third part, the local cures because that is probably the oldest record of Anglo-Saxon medicine. That's due to the fact that unlike the cures that were derived from the Mediterranean, this stuff was probably passed down orally for generations before being compiled at the end of this leech book. And it gives us a glimpse into the perspective of the physician of the era, because it's arranged in a head-to-foot manner and it's focused entirely on symptoms rather than diagnosis or prognosis. There's only a single attempt to identify the cause of a symptom in the entire thing. And that goes in line with what I was saying in the earlier episode about science for its own sake. If you aren't asking why, just to know, you might be missing key facts later on, and you might just be treating symptoms rather than going after the root cause. But anyway, it really is a fascinating section, and we'll be talking more about it when we get to magical cures, because that section has magic in spades. For example, quote, "...against a woman's mad behavior, eat a radish before breakfast, and that day the madness cannot bother you." End quote. That's probably because the radish will be bothering you instead. Or how about this, if you have swollen eyes, you're supposed to cut out the eyes of a crab, and then put the now blinded crab alive back into the water, and then hang the eyes around your neck. That's a bad day for the crab, and probably won't do you much good. However, given the choice of treatments, I think I would go with the local cures. Why? Well, there's less poo. There are only five cures that involve animal poo, and that's dramatically less than what is found in the medicine from the Mediterranean. But anyway, setting aside my fascination with the third part of the leech book and all the strange cures and magic it includes, the leech book in its entirety was probably cutting-edge medicine for its time. So it's pretty impressive even though some of the cures, such as a cure for warts, involved things like dog pee and mouse blood. But while there was a manual for medicine available, was that what most physicians knew? Who knows? The timing of the creation of the leech book suggests that it might have been put together as a result of Alfred's reforms. So was this a compilation of the training that most healers underwent? Or was it a massive compilation of everything medically related that the compiler could get his hands on? If I had to guess, I would say it was probably the latter, and that a lot of medical knowledge might have been passed down orally like we spoke about in earlier episodes, and in that case, unless the cures were useful, they might be forgotten by some communities as the training was passed down. But what we can assume is that the physicians were well-educated, at least for the culture of the time. We can surmise this because even in the leech book, the compiler gives a great amount of leeway to the physician and encourages them to use their judgment in determining doses and the like. This wasn't a paint-by-numbers explanation of cures, but rather the compiler of the book really does seem to expect a certain level of proficiency. And the interesting thing is that based upon the leech book, you can surmise that a well-educated physician who had access to the information contained within the leech book would have had access not just to the best medical knowledge of the area, but arguably the best medical knowledge available in the Western world. So at least by the time of Alfred, a well-educated physician in England could possibly be as good as one anywhere in Europe. So the knowledge was there. But like I mentioned, it's not clear how well that knowledge penetrated into the individual communities throughout England. So that's a long way of saying that while physicians were probably educated people and potentially had access to the best in medical thought at the time, my guess is that the treatments you would receive in Mercia would probably be different than those you'd receive in Northumbria. Hell, the treatments that you would get in one village would probably be different from those you'd get in another village. Which, like I said, has really been a problem with medicine until the last 100 years or so. So not only were there a bunch of ecclesiastical and secular healers, they probably also had a variety of different ways to treat illnesses and injuries. And actually, many of the cures probably involve things that seem sensible to us when we think about it, such as dietary changes. And that makes sense when you consider what they are dealing with. The illnesses they dealt with were often tied either to nutrition, such as knife blindness, or issues with sanitation. In fact, the things that they were treating were fairly common for most of human history. There were illnesses that, if we didn't have our current emphasis on sanitation and have an improved diet, we'd still be dealing with today. While there would be injuries and things along those lines, my guess is that infections and malnutrition, and of course complications from those factors, would have been rampant. And as a result, there would be all manner of illnesses that would be comorbid or simply flow from them. Infection is a really big problem, and it would have been horrible for the Anglo-Saxons. And really, that's all thanks to a lack of understanding of biology and the poor availability of cures. An eye infection today typically just requires a bit of ointment, but back then it could have been potentially life-threatening or at least run the risk of permanent blindness. But the thing is that the physician's role, whether or not he knew it, was largely to support the patient, you know, do things to help the body fight better, such as providing foods that have more vitamins in them and then just hope that the illness resolved itself. And in large part, that's been the story of Western medicine until very recent times. Antibiotics and targeted scorched-earth techniques such as chemotherapy have really changed the game for how we approach illness. But before we figured out cures like that, the toolbox for dealing with something like internal infection or cancer was pretty sparse. And that's the way it would have been for many illnesses. So as you might imagine, many of the treatments were little more than placebos to provide hope to the patient, which oddly does sometimes improve the immune system, though not nearly as effectively as a real cure. They just didn't have the vast body of cures we developed in the last century, hence the attention to diet and, whether they knew it or not, getting various nutritions into the patient's body and just hoping for the best. But to be fair, there were things that could be done to mitigate or treat certain symptoms. And actually, as early as the 7th century, they were using speech therapy for patients that had difficulty speaking. And speech therapy is something we still use today. They also had herbal treatments like Walwort, which might have offered some relief. So don't let me give you the impression that there wasn't any value to their treatments. There just wasn't the wide abundance of effective treatments that we have in our modern time. Sort of like how your great-grandfather might have had access to aspirin and quinine, but there wasn't yet a cure for polio and many other ailments. So in general, much like 100 years ago, unless a real cure was known, the treatments usually involved the physician supporting the body as best as possible and hoping the patient pulls through. Now, of course, there were surgical treatments, and given the lack of knowledge regarding sterilization, that was a rather dodgy undertaking. Hell, even today surgery is dangerous, but we'll get to surgery later. Now, of course, there were treatments that are more stereotypical and maligned from this era, such as bleeding. But actually, bleeding wasn't as common as it would later become. And frankly, for certain things, bleeding is effective. In fact, we still use leeches today, and we see that cure referenced in England as early as the 7th century. But in an era without a complete understanding of medicine, it's not surprising that you'd have physicians who know that bleeding, or maybe just the bite of a leech, provides relief for some ailments, but not understand why it provides relief. And so then they have a cure that's worked on one illness, and they think, well, maybe this works on other illnesses. And if you don't have an accurate understanding of biology, it's not that difficult to imagine that leap. And of course, we eventually end up with the predominant theory of humors, which kept Western medicine locked in an intellectual prison for centuries. Well, maybe it all started with something like this, with a fundamental lack of understanding of why certain cures, like leeches, worked on certain ailments, but not others. But like I said, in the earlier Anglo-Saxon era, bleeding wasn't that common. But it would become common later on, and if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around how that could happen, when there were only a few conditions that it worked on, Consider how, for a while, electroshock therapy was really popular. And that was in the 20th century. And actually, for the record, bleeding is much older than Bald's leech book. And the mentions of it are quite interesting. There's one in particular that has a bishop chastising a convent for bleeding a nun on the fourth day of the moon. This was due to concerns related to her menstrual cycle. And at that point, they used the moon and tide as an indication of how to gauge a woman's cycle and thereby determining when you should or should not bleed a woman. So here in the early Anglo-Saxon times, this is just the seventh century, we see the prevalent belief that hormone cycles are tied to specific phases of the moon. And actually we know that they were using, and I love this term, bleeding charts to determine when it was safe to bleed women. And creating a chart to determine this stuff seems oddly scientific. So despite the lack of scientific understanding from our modern perspective, we can see hints of what would eventually become evidence-based medicine as they tried to find patterns and determine trends. Oh, and speaking of women, that brings up one of our questions. Was medicine a male-only activity? Well, from the illustrations and brief literary references, we only see men acting as physicians. However, all throughout history, there have been women acting in a medical capacity. Even under the more restrictive ages, there have been people like midwives. So were there women involved in medicine? Well, while there isn't any definitive evidence showing their presence, the scope of human history suggests that there probably were. So to sum up, medicine was probably practiced by both lay people and the clergy, their education and training probably widely varied, Consequently, their treatments probably also varied widely, and there were probably women involved in medicine in one form or another, and if the woman's madness was annoying you, you probably should have had a radish before breakfast, for some reason. Oh, and if you were a patient, you better hope that you were lucky, because there weren't many cures available. Okay, so last week we spoke about medicine, but largely on the theory of practice, training, and who was involved. It was all a bit highbrow and might have sounded rather impressive, especially when I pointed out that with Bald's Leech Book, people in England had the potential of having state of the art medicine for the time. Think of it state of the art medicine. That sounds pretty good, right? Well, now that I have you all excited about the status of English medical knowledge, I'm going to break your hearts by talking about what this medicine actually looked like and remind you that state-of-the-art is relative. But I wanted to point out something to you that I forgot to mention last week. And I think that you'll find it useful when thinking about these strange cures and it might put some of this stuff into perspective. You know how you often get antibiotics for ear infections? Well, there are studies that show that, in general, the best that you're looking at is that the infection will clear up 12 hours quicker than it would without any antibiotics or medication whatsoever. Yep, half a day. That's all. Consequently, there are some doctors who don't want to prescribe amoxicillin for ear infections because over time it leads to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And yet it's still handed out quite frequently. Why? Well because people feel better if they're being proactive and taking medication for an illness, even if it might not give much of a benefit. In fact, many antibiotics that we take aren't even bactericidal, bacteria killers. Rather, they're bacteriostatic. They keep the bacteria from replicating until the body has a chance to fight it off on its own. And that's pretty similar to the goal we spoke about last week, isn't it? You know, strengthening the body and just hoping for the best. So these Anglo-Saxon treatments that we're gonna talk about, even though they might seem crazy and some very well could have weakened the patient, probably come from a motivation that should seem familiar in our modern age. Besides, what do you think people will be saying about chemotherapy in 100 years? While there are valid medical principles behind the treatment, it still is rather barbaric when you think about it because you're brutalizing the body and hoping that you kill the cancer faster than you kill the patient. So state of the art, Well, it's relative, and what is sound medicine today might be a punchline in the future. And speaking of punchlines, let's talk about those crazy cures. So we have both Latin and Old English sources for what the medicine looked like, and while there were Greek medical books, they really didn't make it into England in any serious way, so it's just the cures found in Latin and Old English writing that we need to concern ourselves with. Now, the first distinction that you'll notice is that the sources written in Latin seem to be way more concerned with the four humors, which I briefly mentioned last week, than the Old English sources. And don't forget, if they're written in Latin, you are more likely to be dealing with the clergy due to the educational system, if we can even call it that, of the time. Also, you might recall that the Latin versions are newer than the Old English cures. Some of the sources are actually dated to the Norman period, though they were probably talking about cures that were around prior to William getting a bit grabby with Harold's crown. But anyway, medicine. To start with, let's talk about how you determine whether an illness is lethal. That's probably pretty important, right? Well, there are all sorts of ways, and they involve a variety of plants and stuff in general. One of the most entertaining is to smear a person's hand with laven and then give the laven to a dog if the dog eats it then the person will live. Otherwise, the patient is doomed. I don't imagine that there's much that we can point to that's medically sound via this method. I suppose if you're absurdly infected to a point that even your hands are oozing that the dog might turn its nose up, but I don't know. Dogs can be pretty gross sometimes. And also, I mean, maybe the patient is healthy and the dog just isn't hungry. So I'm not entirely sold on this one. Now, the Latin sources were generally more interested in what was going on in the toilet rather than what Fido was interested in eating. So what about that approach? Well, the Canterbury class book says, quote, urine dark in morning is very bad. Urine pure and cloudy signifies approaching death. Red urine, if it has sediment, is not dangerous. Urine white in morning, clear again after breakfast, is best. Wait, 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 wait. If you're peeing red and it has sediment, meaning that it's a little gritty or chunky, it isn't dangerous? Really? Chunky red urine, not dangerous. That sounds rather bad to me. So I chatted with some doctors about it, and it turns out that this isn't as insane as it seems on first blush. So dark urine can be an indication of liver trouble, which would fit in with the very bad category. Pure and cloudy could be a sign of kidneys that aren't doing their job and that there are crystals in your urine. And kidney failure is pretty rough stuff. White urine that clears by morning could be from non-family-friendly activities, but also could be from an overly rich diet and gouty problems. While that's not ideal, someone with a very rich diet could live longer than the malnourished members of society and thus lead to the viewpoint of, well, this is the best one but it's the urine plus sediment being okay that surprised me the most. I think we all know why the urine was probably red. Blood, right? Now, without sediment, this probably meant severe infection, cancer, or kidney failure, but the sediment with red urine probably indicated that the patient was passing a stone. Absurdly painful? Sure. Fatal? Generally not, though you might wish it was. So oddly, this approach of staring at your patient's urine like a pervert isn't as crazy as it might have seemed at first. And speaking of blood, let's chat about bloodletting, because this was an area that the Latin writers were quite fascinated with. And while the Anglo-Saxons didn't fully sign on to this way of thinking, it at least would have been present in some communities in England simply by virtue of its popularity on the continent. And it certainly would have been popular later on. And this was an ancient cure. It's certainly older than the Four Humors, which was one of the worst gifts that Greek philosophy ever gave us. They were really phoning it in that day. Anyway, bleeding. The Greeks, the Romans, and the Egyptians all were quite fascinated with it long before it made its way to Britannia. But it did eventually make it there. And here's a fun thing for you to ponder on your commute. Which do you think caused more blood to be spilled? War? or this fascination with bleeding. And interestingly, apparently where you drain blood from was thought to play a role in its effectiveness. Certain veins controlled certain parts of the body. However, there aren't surface veins all over your body. So what would you do if there wasn't a vein readily accessible? Well, there was always cupping. That's where they make cuts on the body and then heat up a cup and place the now hot cup over the oozing, bleeding wounds that they just made. Awesome. And then as the cup cooled, which probably would have been something of a relief, the air within it would contract, which would basically vacuum the blood out. And this allowed for bloodletting for illnesses in areas that weren't easily bled, such as stomach problems, like the ones that plagued King Alfred. And fun fact here, some cultures still do cupping. Call me close-minded, but I'll stick to the Pepto-Bismol for my stomach aches. But I suppose there's some sort of method to the madness with it all, considering that certain veins serve specific areas of the body. And it was thought that if you drain too much blood, that bile would flow to the brain or phlegm would get stuck in the stomach with no exit, and that explained why the body would grow cold and that the patient would faint if too much bleeding took place. And really, you shouldn't just be bled when you're sick. Rather, it was a preventive measure like taking vitamins. For example, according to this source, you should get blood in April for liver and chest trouble, again in September for pleurisy and further liver troubles. The double treatment of the liver might seem strange until you recall how much ale and wine they were drinking. Now, November was a good time for cupping because all the humors were in balance, which would make for a terrible November. And December bleeding should take care of head troubles and watery eyes. That last bit I find a bit suspect. I'm pretty sure that there were quite a few watery eyes while the bleeding was taking place. Now, my inclination is to be pretty hard on the theory of humors and all the bleeding that has taken place. But something that you have to keep in mind, or at least something I have to keep in mind, is where it comes from. After all, it was really big in the Mediterranean and received plenty of support in Western Europe. And not without reason. Essentially, what happened is that they paid attention to wounds and how often they got infected. And this was before people knew about bacteria and stuff. So it was a bit of a mystery. What caused these wounds to go bad? Why did blood turn to pus? In fact, where the hell did that pus come from? So they started to think that maybe it was part of blood getting too old. They thought that old blood, such as the blood that dried on the surface of a wound, went bad that it had an expiration date, so to speak. And if that was the case, what would happen to the blood that was left inside the body? Well, you'd get sick, right? Was this stupid? Sure. However, as crazy as it may sound, bleeding really does help some medical conditions. For example, we know of a genetic disorder called hemochromatosis, where a mutation causes the body to build up too much iron. This leads to all sorts of problems and will eventually kill you if it isn't treated. And actually, there are recognizable physical signs of illness when you have it. So maybe this was one of the illnesses that provided support for the theory that bleeding was an effective treatment. Why? Well, iron is stored in the blood. So the treatment for hematomicrosis is bloodletting. It still is today. And actually, staring at blood, which is also something that they did, wasn't entirely without diagnostic merit either. For example, a healthy person with normal coagulation will clot differently than someone who is severely sick, has liver failure, or may be nearing death. So bleeding might help a healer diagnose illnesses or at least get a rough approximation of the health of the patient. The trouble there is that there are other conditions that can cause someone to clot differently. For example, someone with hemophilia will clot differently, but will also bleed incredibly easily and now you've just opened up a vein. So how are you going to get it to stop? I mean, really, was bleeding that person the best of plans? And to complicate matters, when bleeding did go sideways on them, and it probably did rather often because they didn't understand infections, clotting factors, and the like. And if you want some support from my theory as to the level of danger related to bleeding, consider this. To staunch the blood flow after bleeding, you're supposed to use freshly powdered dried horse dung. Fantastic. Anyway, if it went pear-shaped on them, and it probably would, they would blame it on external factors like the phases of the moon and the seasons. Not, let me repeat this, not on the horse dung. Awesome. And if you passed out from getting too much blood drawn, they were probably splashy with water and this is just sadistic put something stinky under your nose to try and get you to puke. My guess is it was probably the horse dung. And it wasn't just blood and urine that Latin writers were concerned with. Have you ever had someone try and talk you into that detox drink? You know, the one with lemon, honey, and cayenne, and I don't know, other stuff. Probably wheatgrass. Seems like everything has wheatgrass in it these days. Well, there are references to the Anglo-Saxons doing something similar. Get a load of this. You're supposed to drink a potion of pepper, cloves, pelletory, honey, and strong wine starting in March. And each month, you add new herbs, again, sort of like one of those cleanse diets. However, instead of removing toxins from the blood, this was supposed to balance your humors, which I suppose is sort of like removing toxins from the blood. Now, does that concoction sound gross to you? Do you think you'd have a hard time keeping peppery, clovey, sweetened wine down? Well, that's good news. Puking often was actually considered a sign of health for some believers in the four humors because they thought that it kept your bile and phlegm in check, which in turn would take care of illnesses that came from overeating. Apparently, praying to the porcelain god would help prevent high cholesterol and adult onset diabetes. Take that, oatmeal. Now, you might be asking, what's with all this focus on eating when it comes to the humors? I thought this was a bodily fluid thing, not a dietary thing. So how does that work? Well, the thing is that each humor has two of the following qualities. Heat, moisture, cold, and dryness. So the idea is that based upon the symptoms, you can determine which humors were out of whack and take treatments that would counteract that imbalance. For example, to treat a fever, you provide foods that are cold and moist, but seasoned with aspects that are hot and dry. The idea being that you have too much phlegm, which is causing the fever, but you're trying to bring it back under control so you don't wanna go too far in the opposite direction, otherwise things are gonna go all crazy in the other way. Consequently, you have to have some seasoning that has hot and dry qualities to it to strike the proper balance. So if you have a patient who's showing signs of impending fever, you give him or her some cold food before the fever gets worse. Preferably something with pepper and cumin, see, hot and dry seasoning, but also some calf's feet, wet, cold, and gross, that have been cooked in vinegar, honey, and penny oil. The vinegar, honey, and penny was probably just to cover up the flavor. Wheat buns with some oil and water with celery, fennel, and parsley would also be a good idea. Again, this is all to try and strike the proper balance between hot and dry and cold and wet. However, that's before you have a full-blown fever. Once the patient's temperature strikes, he or she can't have anything. Now that last bit, the bit about having nothing after a fever really sets in, is something we still do today. Feed a cold, starve a fever. Same thing. But usually there are fewer animal feet in our treatments today. But if you imagine that you don't understand bacteria, viruses, infection, metabolism, immunoreaction, and the like, that this might actually make sense You have forces in your body that trend towards hot, cold, wet, and dry. Much like the seasons. There are four humors, there are four seasons, there are four apostles, there's four everything. For people in the Dark Ages, this pattern probably made a lot of sense. And each phase of your life has humors that were dominant. And when things got out of alignment, you'd get sick. So how do you bring them under control? Well, obviously, by introducing things that represent the opposite of whatever's out of control. I mean, in a weird way, there's a logic to it, but it's based entirely on faulty concepts. In fact, I would be willing to wager that the primary reason we ended up with the four humors dominating European life for about a thousand years is that the thinkers of the time confused correlation with causation. And if you have a look around the internet, especially when it comes to medicine for about five minutes, I think you'll find that we still have a problem differentiating correlation with causation. And this line of thinking infected absolutely everything in Western thought. Take the analysis of human personalities as an example, which could be viewed as a precursor to psychology. We ended up with the four temperaments. Again, fours, right? These temperaments were choleric, sanguine, melancholic, and phlegmatic. I'm totally sanguine, by the way. But that's besides the point. You still had personality theory for a time flowing from this concept of humors. Anyway, the point of telling you all this isn't to point out how crazy this thinking is, but it was to show you how prevalent it was and how it wasn't entirely surprising that, given the state of science of the age, it would grow to corrupt Western intellectual thought for centuries. So the four humors, they're stupid, and this isn't the last we'll see of them. And once they get into English medicine, it's going to take a very long time to get them out. Thanks for that, Grease. But I should make it clear once again that this sort of thinking didn't seem to have fully caught on in Anglo-Saxon England, since the old English sources seem to have largely ignored it unless it was part of the larger encyclopedia of medicine, such as Bald's leech book. They did talk about bleeding, but they didn't really focus too much on whether or not your phlegm was out of balance. And actually, let's get back to that leech book, because there's a lot of fun stuff going on in it. And like I said, while there are parts of Bald's leech book that do discuss the humors and bodily fluids, the third part of the leech book, which is where we see the only real treatise on northern European medicine from the Anglo-Saxon era, well, that pretty much ignores the humors. And the bits of the leech book that do discuss the humors really don't do it to the level of obsession that you see on the continent. That's probably because of what the leech book was. It seems like it was a sort of encyclopedia, and it certainly had a copy-paste feel to it that supports that impression. In fact, you can see many of the familiar hallmarks of a poor copy-paste job when you look at it. For example, there are bits referencing earlier sections that exist in the original text, but were not copied into the leech book. So students, when you are busted in class for copying a paper you found online, keep in mind that your failure to properly proofread your plagiarism is an age-old tradition. But the point is that while Bald's leech book was our biggest and oldest treatise on what medicine might have looked like in Anglo-Saxon England, we shouldn't read too much into the occasional references to humors in the first two sections because a wide variety of sources were being copied or translated to create the leech book. So in that situation, of course, you'd see some of the humors because that was the theme of the Mediterranean. For example, it mentions that to keep your stomach healthy, you need to have your urine and feces in good working order. If you weren't peeing enough, you should drink a broth of celery, fennel, and other sweet herbs. If you weren't pooing enough, you should eat olives, beets, cabbage, and mallow before bed. And this was serious business. After all, leprosy was considered connected to an imbalance of the humors. But in large part, that's the exception, and Anglo-Saxon medicine is more concerned with direct treatments rather than discussing causation, which basically means rather than discussing the balance of the four humors. And with that in mind, there are differences between the first two sections, the Mediterranean section, and the third, Northern European section. And let's use stomach pain as an example, since King Alfred suffered from it, and he was sort of my carrot from last week to keep everybody interested. Well, for stomach pain, the Mediterranean-inspired portion suggests ground linseed boiled in vinegar before bed, chewed pennyroyal placed on the patient's navel, and a drink of water with some dill. Alternatively, you can have a hot drink with laurel shoots, cumin, parsley, 20 peppercorns, dill, and the dried stomach membranes of three young birds. Gross. And then you drink it until the pain is resolved, or at least you stop complaining about the stomach pain. There's also bread boiled in goat's milk, rue boiled in honey, or wild pigeon cooked in water and vinegar that might do the trick, or chewed laurel leaves And then you swallow the juice and put the chewed leaves on your belly button. Or a hot drink made out of the marrow of a heart. Or a meal made from unwashed, boiled beets along with some honey, salt, and oil. And if that didn't work, a single cooked leek might fix it. Or some mulberry juice, which was a common cure for a lot of things. Or some plum shoots before bed. So the Mediterranean inspired section contained quite a lot of cures for stomach aches, which suggests that one, they probably didn't work all that well, so they needed backups. Two, that the cures were a hodgepodge drawn from a number of unattributed sources, which can be generally traced to the Mediterranean. And three, eventually the illness either resolved itself, the patient died, or the patient got tired of eating strange things and just stopped complaining and suffered through it. So that's Mediterranean medicine. What did the European section have to say? Well, on the one hand, it was simpler. But on the other hand, it was a pretty shady cure. It says that seed and quicksilver, that's mercury, should be eaten along with vinegar before bedtime. I should point out that mercury is why the Mad Hatter was mad. In fact, mercury poisoning is still called Mad Hatter's disease. It's not good for you. At all. So are you feeling a little sorry for King Alfred yet? I am. After all, he was the king, so his physicians probably took a kitchen sink approach. You can almost imagine the doctors standing over the poor sickly king and asking themselves, why does he never seem to get better? Let's try more mercury and horse dung. And cut the other arm. And your highness, really try and puke harder this time. I think that'll help. Okay, so last week we chatted a bit about treatments, and from the comments I've received, it seemed like many of you were quite interested in the treatments and wanted to hear some more. And frankly, I had fun putting it together. So let's talk about some more. And let's begin with trauma, since there would have been a fair amount of that in Anglo-Saxon Britain. If unfirth was in a fight and received a cut that went down to the sinews and severed them, and let's face it, this was probably not an uncommon event. Bald's leech book suggests that the physician pound up some earthworms and then put them on Unferth's open wound. Yeah, ground up earthworms. I suppose he should just be happy that it wasn't the powdered fresh horse dung that we had last week. But it really makes you wonder who thought that worms were a good idea and why. I mean, it would have undoubtedly failed numerous occasions and yet they kept doing it and even wrote it down. However, Overall, I think that the worms are a pretty poor representation for medicine from this time. So let's have a look at another one. What if Unferth took a blow to the head? Maybe he walked behind a particularly high-strung horse? Or maybe he got drunk and thought he'd compare his thane unfavorably to said horse's backside? Well in either of those circumstances, he might find himself suffering from a skull fracture. If the bone was splintered but wouldn't come out, that's a pretty dangerous situation but fear not, the leech book has him covered. The treatment was to pound betony and lay that on the wound until the bone came out on its own. Simple, right? Basically leave it alone and keep it covered until the body takes care of it. Now you might be thinking that putting leaves and flowers on an open skull fracture is a bad idea, but betony has long been an herbal cure throughout the world due to its antibacterial and antiseptic properties. So, pounded betony on the wound might not be as crazy as it might seem at first, which is good news for Unfirth. Or maybe Unfirth has a less impressive, but also probably rather common wound. Due to Unfirth's dietary issues, infections, poor immune system, or maybe just due to a punch in the mouth, Unfirth has mouth ulcers. Well, his physician might suggest that he cook up some plum tree leaves in some wine and then wash his mouth out with them until the situation is resolved. And like the cure for the head wound, this wasn't as irrational as you might think. Wine from that period was going to be saturated in acetic acid. And when combined with the alcohol and tannins, it probably helped clean out the wounds. So some of these cures might have had some benefits, which is great news for Unfirth. And that really is going to be the theme of this episode. However, the worms, in my opinion, are still crazy. But a lot of these treatments seem remarkably on the nose, even if they weren't as effective as our modern cures. So to get a better idea of what medicine might have looked like for Unferth, let's talk about something that most everybody would have dealt with in one way or another. Infection. Infection would have been really common, and they weren't aware of exactly why it was happening either. Here's a hint on Firth. When you have an open wound, skip the horse dung. And like we spoke about earlier, the eyes in particular would have been an area where infection could easily take root. Remember, our obsession with antibacterial soap and Lysol hadn't caught on yet. As a result, as a result, we see a lot of cures for what they referred to as, quote, dimness of the eyes, end quote, which easily could have been infection or vision troubles, cataracts or the like. And it was probably more infections than the rest. So here's a selection of cures from Bald's leech book that Unferth might have been subjected to if he suffered from dimness of the eyes. This should actually give you a good sense of the medicine of the time. And I'd like you to pay attention to the ingredients used in these cures, as well as the effort that was put into preparation. Take the juice or blossoms of calandine, mix with bumblebee honey, put in a brass vessel... Make lukewarm skillfully over warm coals until it is cooked. For the same again, the juice of wild rue, bedewed, and braid, mix with an equal amount of strained honey, anoint the eyes with that. Take green fennel, put in water for thirty nights, in a crock which has been pitched outside, then fill with rainwater, after that throw away the fennel, and each day wash the eyes with the water and open them. Take calandine juice, a spoonful, another of fennel, a third of southernwood juice, and of virgin honey, two spoonfuls, mix together, and then with a feather, put on the eyes in the morning, and when it is midday, and again at evening, after it has become dried and exhausted. Because of the sharpness of the salve, take the milk of a woman who has a child, put in the eyes. Take balsam and virgin honey, equal amounts of both, mix together, and anoint with that. Calendine juice and seawater. Anoint the eyes with it and bathe. It is then best that you take the juice of calendine and of mugwort and rue, equal amounts of all. Add honey and balsam if you have it. Put in a vessel where you may cook it, sealed, and use. Salt burned and rubbed up and mixed with bumblebee honey. Anoint with that. Juice of the fennel and roses and rue and bumblebee honey and kid's gall. mixed together. Anoint the eyes with that. Green coriander rubbed up and mixed with woman's milk, lay over the eyes. Live winkles, those are snails by the way, burn to ashes and mix the ashes with bumblebee honey. Melt in the sun the fats of all river fishes and mix with honey, anoint with it. Bentney juice beaten with its roots and wrung out and juice of yarrow and calendime, equal amounts of all, mixed together and put on the eyes fennel roots pounded mixed with pure honey boil them over a light fire carefully to the thickness of honey then put in a brass ampulla and when there is need anoint with it earth ivy juice and fennel juice put equal amounts of both in an ampulla then dry in the hot sun and anoint the eyes inwardly with it okay so did you notice how often honey was coming up in the recipes Actually, honey is one of the most common ingredients for medicine in the entirety of Bald's Leech Book, second only to butter. And it was actually a close race. Butter was only leading by two recipes. So why honey? Well, honey is antibacterial. In fact, modern medicine is starting to use some forms of honey as an antibiotic against drug-resistant bacteria. Honey is good stuff. You might have also noticed how common rue was. Well, that has anti-hemorrhagic properties and is good for strengthening and tightening capillaries. So it should have beneficial effects upon the patient, including reducing swelling. What else did we see in there? Well, calendine and fennel both appeared quite a lot, didn't they? And calendine is supposedly antifungal and antibacterial, and fennel is apparently antimicrobial. But my guess is that the thing that jumped out at you and stuck in your mind wasn't the honey, or the fennel, or the betony, or any of the other KFC herbs and spices, if I had to wager, I'm guessing that you listened to those cures and at one point you said, wait, what? Breast milk? In the eye? Who does that? Well, Unfirth did. Though it does raise the question of who first figured out that cure and what exactly they were doing. And the thing is, after they figured out that cure, how awkward would that be? I mean, you have a new mother going about her work, and then all of a sudden a healer comes up with a rather strange request on behalf of Unfirth. Weird, right? But oddly, it was probably not without medical benefit. That's because breast milk has a bunch of antibodies in it. So it could have provided some sort of benefit. It's possible. And the question when approaching ancient medicine really comes down to this. Did the ingredients that they were using have some sort of beneficial effect? And a lot of times, though not all the time, I'm looking at you, horse dung, the material that they were using did have a positive effect. And interestingly, a lot of the medicinal ingredients between 70 and 80% in Bald's Leech Book was plant matter. And many plants are poisonous in certain quantities. So the benefits of the ingredients in these cures would be dependent upon dosage. Though, really, that isn't too different from our medications today. Take too much aspirin and you're going to get a trip to the hospital. And actually, the prevalence of plant matter in drugs shouldn't surprise you either. Until the 19th century, most medicines were plant-based. And did you know that about a quarter of our modern drugs are either plant-derived or synthetic copies of plant products? And many of those plants in modern cures were used in ancient times as well. So we shouldn't be too quick to condemn ancient cures as backwards and worthless, because many of them would have been somewhat effective. For example, there are quite a few cures for wounds and infection that called for crushed or beaten Plantago. Actually, there are 48 different remedies that use Plantago in Bald's leech book. And of those, 25 were for ailments that would have benefited from its antibiotic properties. Yeah, Plantago has antibiotic properties. Anyway, you're looking at over half of the cures using Plantago were effectively used to control infection. It's kind of amazing, right? Or how about this cure for coughing? They would mix together whorehound, which was an antispasmodic, with honey and butter along with something warm to drink. The honey would provide antibiotic treatment, the butter would soothe the sore throat, and the whorehound would suppress the instinct to cough. sounds pretty effective to me. Here's another example, and this is actually one of my favorites. If Unferth had a sty, his physician was instructed to take, quote, onion and garlic, equal amounts of both, pound well together, take wine and bull's gall, equal amounts of both, mix with the leeks, and then put in a brass vessel, let stand for nine nights in the brass vessel, strain through a cloth and clear well, put in a horn, and about night time, put that in the eye with a feather, end quote. Okay. So a sty is usually a hair follicle on the eyelid that's been infected by Staphylococcus, commonly referred to as a staph infection. So it's a bacteria, and we know that onion and garlic are antibacterial, so using them in the cure isn't a terrible idea. And actually, bull's gall would have been rather effective against bacteria like staph due to its detergent qualities. And like we spoke about earlier, wine would have been really acidic, and so that would have helped as well. But the really interesting thing isn't found in what was being mixed, but rather what it was being mixed in. Did you notice that the recipe called specifically for a brass vessel? And actually brass and copper vessels were rather common in many cures, including some of the ones I read earlier. And that's quite relevant. As you know, brass has some copper in it. And in this cure, when the copper in the brass interacts with the acid in the wine, it would have produced copper salts. And these copper salts mean business. They kill everything they come into contact with. But when dealing with an infection, the hope is that the salts would kill the bacteria faster than they kill unfirth. Think of it like Anglo-Saxon chemotherapy. So for this cure, the copper salts were probably doing the heavy lifting. But there was also gall, onion, and garlic acting as antibacterials. It was sort of like a triple antibiotic ointment, like neosporin. And all before they had any understanding of bacteria or antibiotics. And these ingredients were used in other cures as well. In fact, one cure specifically calls for copper salts, though most just called for a recipe that would create them as a side effect, such as putting curds, which contain lactic acid, in a copper vessel and then scraping that vessel out and using the goo to treat infected eyelids. That goo would have had copper salts in it. Or do you remember the honey and calendine mixture that was to be cooked in a brass vessel over warm coals? The acid in that mix would have produced copper salts too, and those would have aided the antibacterial honey. So did they know that they were creating copper salts in those particular cures? Maybe. But the fact of the matter is that they were a feature in many of their remedies, and based on one of their cures, they must have known that copper salts could be acquired and used as a cure, provided that the dosage and usage was carefully controlled. Seriously, that stuff is no joke. Now, did they understand why they worked? No. But it seems like they understood that it did work. But beyond the sheer badassness of copper salts, why am I telling you about them? Well, primarily it's to counteract the instinct to assume that I'm talking about magic when I'm recounting these cures. Many of the cures that I read to you today had well-organized rituals, and you might be tempted to think, oh, unfirth." You're so adorable with your silly, magical rites. But you'd be doing yourself a disservice. There are real chemical interactions that are occurring as a result of these specific methods. And some of them are producing substances that would have had real medicinal impact upon the patient. Did Unferth or any of the other Anglo-Saxons know that? No. They had no understanding of antibodies, antibiotics, or how cells break down when confronted with copper salts. For them, there probably was an element of magic in there just by virtue of their failure to understand. In fact, there's a good chance that it was extremely magical for them. However, it's helpful to remember that they were not a separate species from us. These Anglo-Saxons, even Unferth, had the same brain that you do. They were able to recognize patterns and draw conclusions just like you can. So while they might not have understood why a ritual worked, they could have determined that it did work. And for the Anglo-Saxons, who were mired in a culture that didn't bother asking why, the fact that it sometimes worked was probably enough. And even the cures that really looked magical sometimes had medicinal benefit. Take, for example, the cures that call for lichen. A lot of time, the cures call for the lichen to be taken from, among other places, a crucifix or a church. That might give you the impression that magic was in play here, and the Anglo-Saxons probably were hedging their bets by saying where the lichen needed to be taken from. However, there are several strains of lichen that are effective antibiotics against staph and other bacterial infections. Now, do those strains of lichen only grow in crucifixes? No. But you can start to see how magic medicine might be developing and how there is actual medical value to some of the things they're doing. Hell, you could look at the prevalence of iron in many of these cures. On the surface, it might look like magic, such as plunging a hot iron into wine. But for illnesses that result from too little iron in the blood, something like that could have a positive impact upon the patient. Though as always, I should caution you not to read too much into the fact that some of these cures made sense and remember that not all of these cures had medicinal value. Some had little or none, and some had a negative impact. So these weren't all good, and we're dealing with a lot of ignorance in this period. And so some of the cures are just downright stupid, and it's important to remember that. For example, to treat his nearsightedness, Unfirth might have opened his eyes while submerged in cold water, which would have done next to nothing. And his physician might have told him that Unfirth's trouble with his eyes was due to drinking too much wine. Well, his doctor might have been onto something there. I've had blurred vision thanks to a bottle of Pinot, so too much wine can mess with your vision. But other sweet drinks and also certain foods were also thought to be bad for the eyes. For example, he probably would have been instructed to avoid leeks and cabbage, which are not bad for your eyes. Also, he wasn't allowed to lay down in bed during the day. Nor was he to be exposed to cold, wind, smoke, or dust. Now the smoke and dust makes sense, right? You don't want a lot of smoke and dust in your eyes if you're having a hard time seeing. But in general, there doesn't seem to be much medical rationale behind the theory of why Unferth had bad eyesight. And really, he's not allowed to lay down during the day. Do you really want a nearly blind Unferth out of bed and wandering around the village? You know, maybe that's how he got kicked by that horse earlier in this episode. Let's open up with a comment from listener Claudia. You might recall the use of breast milk to cure Unferth's eye trouble from the last episode. Well, Claudia says that using breast milk to treat your child's conjunctivitis is common advice in New Zealand to this day. So some of these cures that we've been speaking about live on. Now, in order to wrap up this discussion on medicine into a single episode, we're going to need to do something of a catch-all episode here. So we're going to cover surgery, magical cures, issues of contraception and family planning, and childbirthing. So it's going to be a busy one. So let's do this. So surgery, much of Western medicine, and I think many of you will agree with me on this, is surgery focused. Is something wrong with you? And if so, can we cut it off? If that's the case, why are we still talking? Hand me my scalpel, or something along those lines. Well, oddly, surgery isn't mentioned all that often by the Anglo-Saxons when compared with their Mediterranean counterparts. Though given the state of sanitation and sterilization, I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing things kind of were a bit gross during the Anglo-Saxon period, and they got really gross during the Viking period. So maybe the Anglo-Saxons figured out that surgery was just a bit too dangerous to mess around with. But if that's the case, you'd think that it would only be mentioned in relation to things that were life-threatening. Basically, surgery as a last resort. But that's not what we see from the record. For example, Bald's leech book includes plastic surgery. Yeah, you heard that right plastic surgery. Though, of course, this wasn't like modern plastic surgery, such as nose jobs and facelifts. Rather, it was for the repairs of hair lips. So if the patient had a hair lip, the surgeon was to, quote, pound mastic very fine, add white of an egg, and mix as you do vermilion. Cut with a knife, sew securely with silk, then anoint with the salve outside and inside before the silk rots. If it pulls together, arrange it with a hand, and annoy it again immediately. End quote. Now, there are several things to note here. The first is, they're doing plastic surgery. I bet you weren't expecting that. And to be honest, neither was I when I started doing this project. And it does raise the question of whether they were already becoming proficient enough to engage in surgery to correct non-life-threatening issues. For all the horse dung and ground-up worms, we are still seeing the development of Western medicine here, and a level of medical knowledge that might be rather jarring compared to the common perception of Anglo-Saxon England. The second thing to note from the instructions on how to correct a hair lip is that they seem to have had access to silk and used it in a surgical context. Not only does this show that their trade connections were significant, which can never be emphasized enough, I find that we often underestimate trade from the pre- and post-Roman era, and that's why I keep harping on about how we were not an island adrift and severed from the world, but rather we were engaged. There were still trade routes, there were still imports, and some of the goods traveled quite a long distance to make it to England, so we still have rather extensive trade networks. So that's one thing that the silk tells us. The other thing is that using silk was a smart move, honestly. Why do I say that? Because silk was actually quite strong, it's relatively resistant to being broken down by the body, and it's still used for sutures today. Yeah, silk sutures are still a thing. Not as primitive as you thought, huh? Additionally, did you notice that they were reapplying the antibiotic ointment, what they were calling a salve? And they were doing it every time that the wound would be contaminated, such as dealing with rotted silk and the physician touching the wound. That's something that might not have jumped out at you, but it is a big deal. We do that now because we're aware of bacteria and how infections work. But this isn't a time when contagion was still being referred to as a flying venom or as some loathsome creature wandering the land. Yet here in this description of surgery, we have something that's remarkably similar to how we handle rebandaging in our modern age. Pretty awesome, right? But we should keep in mind that while the information might have been available, it's not clear how often this procedure would have been carried out. In general, my guess is that surgery would have been reserved for the more life-threatening conditions since even today surgery can be dangerous. Even routine procedures can have life-threatening complications. But sometimes you can't avoid it and simply need surgery. For example, there are detailed instructions on how to handle amputations when a limb has gone black from ischemia. It opens up with a discussion, of course, of dealing with inflammation in terms of a limb being too warm or too cool and how to correct it. Now, while that has some benefit to it, we shouldn't forget that we still have the humors lurking around and mucking up the logic behind medical treatments. But despite the humors, it does contain solid advice. The Leech book explains that if a limb has gone dead, meaning that it's black and no longer has feeling, that the physician should carve the dead flesh away. And it says that you should cut along the healthy flesh rather than along the border of the dead flesh. That sounds like something very familiar to how we deal with surgeries now. And it wouldn't have been common sense at the time. The instinct would be to try and save as much flesh as possible. But actually the smart move is to make sure you get all of the infected flesh if the limb has gotten so bad that it's gone black and numb. That's why even today, surgeons cut pretty far into healthy tissues for conditions like this. So they are making a remarkably modern medical decision here. And after everything has been cut away, the leech book calls for cauterizing the wound, which would prevent the patient from bleeding out. Now, this might seem like an obvious choice to you because we've all watched ER and we've all watched house and cauterization has become somewhat normalized but to further injure a wounded patient with fire might have seemed rather strange to the patient and his or her family. Hell, it might have seemed even downright sadistic. But it was a smart move and significantly better than the horse dung. So all in all, it's pretty impressive. Now the question that follows here is, was this actually performed in England? Or is it just a curiosity from the leech book that was ignored by all the physicians? Well, it's hard to say but it's translated from Latin in a very matter-of-fact way, and it contains rather sensible and easy-to-follow explanations of what to do. So if there was someone with access to this leech book, or the knowledge within it, we have no reason to think that it wouldn't have been performed. Now, there are also detailed descriptions of how to use surgery to deal with liver abscesses. And I know what you're thinking here. You're thinking, What? With all the beer and wine, the Anglo-Saxons had liver trouble? No way. But the joke's on you. The liver condition that this would have been used to treat probably wasn't the result of booze. In fact, more booze might have prevented it. That's because this particular liver abscess probably would have been the result of the bacteria that causes dysentery invading the liver. And a major vector for getting infected with that bacteria would have been drinking foul water. So Alex, Chris, Matt, and all the other listeners who suffered through hangovers after the London meetup Keep in mind that I simply wanted to save you from the dangers of drinking water. Anyway, if you have this nasty little bug and leave it untreated, the liver will swell and eventually discharge into the body. And nothing good follows that. So it was serious business. Now the good news is that there was a treatment. Of a sort. And it did involve lancing, which had the potential to help a bit. The bad news is that it also involved all sorts of awful stuff that wouldn't have helped like dove's dung. And to complicate matters, the translator or compiler didn't understand the procedure and probably never performed it. We can guess that because a key aspect of the original procedure is the insertion of a wick or tent within the lancing incision and the replacement of the wick each time the wound was opened for draining. But that wasn't in the version that's in the leech book. So the compiler or translator might just have been dutifully recording something that was not really understood and they came upon the portion with a wick, had no idea what that was, and just left it out. Which is bad news for Unferth since the tone of the leech book seems to indicate that the compiler was, in general, quite knowledgeable. So the implication is that this liver treatment might not have been available despite its presence in the leech book. The even worse news... Is that we know it was eventually used and it continued to be performed until the 19th century now this qualifies as even worse because actually using this procedure was an awful thing it all too often killed the patient and that's why it was eventually discontinued in the 1800s doves dung and all but this procedure and its terrible track record tells us something about anglo-saxon life namely Surgery was rare and dangerous as hell. It's almost never mentioned by the medical texts unless it's in the context of bleeding, which would have been, to say the least, rather dodgy. However, it still does show us a stepping stone towards Western medicine and its emphasis on surgical intervention. But when it comes down to it, there was an option that was a good deal safer than surgery and probably much more favorably looked upon. Magic. What's the old phrase? First, do no harm. Well, in general, a charm is probably going to be less harmful than dove's dung. So let's talk about the magic that's tied up in these cures. I know I've spent a lot of time talking about the rational side to Anglo-Saxon medicine, or at least the bits of the medicine that would make rational sense in our current culture. But magic was an element to ancient medicine, and while I would argue that magic wasn't as dominant to Anglo-Saxon medicine as some authors imply, you can't deny that magic played a role. And often... That role was one of support. The thing is that diagnosis wasn't an emphasis in their medicine. They weren't interested in the causes of disease. Even the humors weren't really emphasized as much as their Mediterranean counterparts. In general, medicine for the Anglo-Saxons was a matter of treating symptoms. So it's not too much of a stretch to imagine a physician looking at everything that was done to cure a patient and being unable to determine which part was actually doing the heavy lifting. Was it the copper salts? Was it the liking from a cross? Was it the amulet that he was wearing? Or how about where he was positioned in the room? Or what about what I said right before I gave him the cure? What actually did it? Who knows? All you know is that when he did all of those actions, Unfirth pulled through. And because of the nature of the body, and because they were just treating symptoms rather than identifying causes, they wouldn't have been able to accurately determine which parts were necessary and which parts weren't. Take for example, the treatment of a headache. It could be very different depending on the cause, right? I mean, maybe it's a common cold and you just need aspirin. Or maybe it's a slow bleeding aneurysm, in which case aspirin's gonna be pretty bad. Or maybe it's a brain tumor, in which case aspirin's not gonna do anything. You need surgery or chemotherapy or something along those lines. All these illnesses are very different, but the symptom that you're complaining about, the headaches, that's all the same. So if you're just saying for headaches, we use the following treatment, you're going to have varying success depending on what you're treating. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, is it surprising that we ended up with magic in our medicine? Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't, and it's all rather mysterious. And in that situation, including magic within your cures doesn't seem all that crazy. Think about it in terms of insurance. We know with our current understanding of medicine and the human body that a lot of what was going on with these cures was that the physician, or leech as the Anglo-Saxons would have called him, was simply trying to support the patient and letting the body heal itself. Now whether he knew that or not is another matter, but that's essentially what he was doing. And like I mentioned in earlier episodes, much of modern medicine operates along the same lines. So the physician, unsure of why things sometimes work and sometimes don't, might have been adding in a little insurance to try and tip the scales. And this reliance on magic would have probably become more prevalent in conditions that were difficult to treat, such as dysentery. There is a lot of poo in this episode, isn't there? Anyway... Dysentery was a mystery and quite dangerous, so the cures were often a mix of magical cures with some elements that had some actual medicinal effect. Here's an example. You were supposed to find a bramble that had both ends in the ground and then dig up the newer root, cut nine shavings into your left hand, sing a holy song three times, then sing another holy song nine times, then boil the shavings, along with some mugwort and everlasting, into milk and then drink a bunch of it before breakfast. After that, you need to rest and have a lot of blankets, rinse, and repeat. Apparently, you shouldn't have to do this more than three times. So there we see the blending of a magical ritual with rational medicine. And this was pretty common. And really, the only difference between that magic and the use of an acidic tonic in a copper or brass vessel is that in the latter case, it would create copper salts and in the bramble cure, the singing really didn't accomplish anything. But they both look magical as hell, don't they? So I guess the point is that magic is deeply intertwined and it's rather hard to draw a line between magical ritual and rational medicine without also relying upon our current understanding of medicine to differentiate the two. Does that make sense or was I getting a little too jargony there? What I'm saying is that for the Anglo-Saxons, there's the possibility that everything had an element of magic to it. Whereas for us, we sometimes look at the rituals and say, hey, there's a chemical reaction right there and that makes perfect rational sense. And then we look at other rituals and we say, why are you wasting time with singing? So as we look through all of this stuff, we need to make sure that we're looking through the lens of the Anglo-Saxons and try to keep our modern perspective at bay as best as we can. But there's another problem for us as we're looking through all this stuff. While there are some elements that are clearly magical, such as the singing or the collection of lichen from a cross, we need to be really careful. The thing is that the use of the copper vessel or the heated iron rod or any of the other implements that might seem magical to us, well we need to make sure that we don't assume too much. It's possible that even though these rituals seem magical to us, they weren't seen as magical to the patient or the physician. Our records from this period are very sparse indeed. So unfortunately, we don't have a clear picture of how the Anglo-Saxon physician and patient actually looked at all these cures. I'll do my best to differentiate between magic and non-magic, but I just want you to be aware that there isn't a clear line that's provided for us, and this whole business is a bit soupy. For example, when you're eating a radish as a defense against a woman's mad behavior, and I love that cure, by the way, Was that seen as magic that would ward off the crazy lady? Or was it just seen as providing a sort of numbing effect for the patient where he didn't really care anymore about said woman's mad behavior? The first one is pretty clearly magical. The second one is medicinal, even though there's really no rational medicine behind it. And seriously, I love that cure. If it wasn't for the horse dung, that would be my favorite ridiculous cure. But the horse stung in an open wound really has to claim first prize. Anyway, you see the dilemma we have here, can't you? How is it seen by the patient? Given the amount of resources we have, it's really hard to say. But there are some cures that seem more magical than others. For example, while I've been talking about magic, you might have been thinking about amulets. Amulets are essentially something that's just tied around the neck. For example, the crab eyes we spoke about in an earlier episode that had to be tied around the patient's neck. Well that's an amulet. Amulets featured in Anglo-Saxon magical medicine, and many of them appear in the third part of the leech book or in other related leech books, which indicate that they were part of the non-Mediterranean folk cures, the real Anglo-Saxon cures, which tells us something about the treatments that the common people were probably experiencing, and how it differed from the advanced cures that were probably available to the more powerful members of society. But something that I find really fascinating about the amulets is that they weren't just for medical symptoms. There were also amulets designed for preventing the temptation of the devil. What temptation, you ask? I'm not sure, but if I had to guess, it probably would be... And probably with a side of... Until it falls off. You might balk, but I'm told that it's worth the trouble and the prison sentence that almost certainly will follow. So amulets, at least for the folk medicine, were applied for a variety of issues. And they actually show us something interesting about the culture, too. Namely, that words had a particular power to them, not just spoken word or song, but also the writing of words. There were some cures that involved writing down special words and then placing those writings on the patient. For example, a virgin was to hang the sacred writing around the neck of the patient for one particular cure. So basically, she was hanging an amulet. See, these amulets are all over the place. And sometimes there was even magic tied up into how the amulet was created. There would be a sacred declaration. Sometimes you need to do something holy, such as making the sign of the cross. There's all kinds of stuff. And yes... Amulets weren't just pagan, there were also Christian amulets. That's something that people sometimes forget. Christianity had magic tied up in it as well. And that actually provides yet another wrinkle in the analysis of our cures and what aspects the Anglo-Saxons saw as magical. You see, my inclination is to assume that the sacred incantations and religious aspects are evidence of magical medicine. But that's personal bias. Consider this. Many of my listeners are Christian, and I'm guessing that many of you wouldn't see a prayer or the sacraments as magic. Conversely, you could well see a rain dance as magical. What is a perfectly reasonable religious ritual to one person might just be a magical event to another person. And perspectives are tough things to hammer down, and that's what we've been trying to do with this entire series, get a handle on how these people viewed the world, but ultimately it's a murky image at best. So what was viewed as magic, and what wasn't? It's hard to say. But what we can be sure of is that in many cures, they put at least some effort into aspects that had no basis in rational medicine. And to our modern eyes, some of that does look like magic. And the truth of it is that the magical aspects were often much more intricate and involved than the actual medicinal aspects. There might just be a single herb that's providing some benefit, such as betony. But surrounding that cure is a massive ritual that involves actions, statements, and ingredients that would have had no impact whatsoever, and in some case could be undermining the positive effect of the betony. And then you have the effect that magic could have on diagnosis. If you suddenly became ill, the chances of a healer correctly diagnosing you were pretty slim. Hell, the chances of a healer even bothering to try and diagnose you were slim. Why is that? Elf shot. There's good evidence that it was believed that many sudden-onset illnesses were the result of elves shooting the patient with some sort of illness or poison. There was also the belief that diseases were caused by malignant spirits. When you're facing off with elves, spirits, and fairies, why not use a little magic in your medicine? It sort of makes sense, right? Though how prevalent this belief was by the time the leech books were being compiled isn't clear. But those beliefs could account for the widespread presence of magic in the third folk medicine section of the Leech Book. Besides, people still referred to Contagion as a flying venom or an evil creature. So is it so hard to believe that disease was seen as having some sort of magical aspect? And those beliefs could account for the presence of charms and amulets that appear to be intended to target evil spirits and the like. And in the case of the charm, the idea was that it would exorcise the evil spirit or elf shot. And often, the creation of that charm appears, at least to me, to be rather magical. You had special knives, sacred words, statements against the attacking spirits, and various other ritual aspects. And of course, oftentimes, there were herbs. And sometimes those herbs would have been quite effective against the symptom they were working to cure. Maybe everyone was largely aware that the magic wasn't necessary, but it provided some sort of comfort. For example, let's look at modern medicine. White coats are not necessary for treatment. Neither is waiting for an hour, for that matter. But that's what you expect if you're visiting the doctor. And that aura of the doctor does provide some sort of comfort. Most people, side note here, I'm notorious for questioning and double-checking my doctor, but most people, take what the doctor says on faith, and there's comfort in that. And with that, there's a certain placebo effect that's probably taking place. It's basically along the lines of, I'm not convinced that yoga will help my back condition, but you're in a white coat, so here I am doing downward-facing dog. And you must know what you're talking about because you got the white coat on, and, you know, I'm feeling a little bit better just because I'm trying to do something to fix my back. It's something along those lines. Well, with the Anglo-Saxons, they might've had something similar going on. The magic, the ritual, and the mystery of it all might've provided some level of comfort that made the patient feel like he or she was getting good care. If the healer just said, put some bentney on it and stop scaring the horses, or at least don't do it when you're behind them, well, that might not inspire the same sort of confidence as a lengthy ritual, some sacred writing, and an amulet for you to take home. Oh, and also some bentney. So by the time the leech book was written, were all these things seen as magical? Well, it's hard to say. But the fact that some of these cures worked must have at least convinced some of the people that this was due to magic. And maybe there was the odd person like me sitting around saying, all this singing is rubbish. You don't have the faintest idea what you're doing, do you? Seriously, I'm an awful patient. Okay, so now that we've covered magic and how we don't know how it was viewed or whether it was even widely believed by the people... Let's wrap this up by talking about the magic that everyone believed in. Let's talk about sex. That woke you up, didn't it? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not going to give you the birds and the bees talk, nor am I going to go all 50 shades of gray on you. Instead, we're going to tackle an aspect of sex that is vitally important for the development of human civilization. Contraception. Now, contraception is nothing new. Most civilizations have employed family planning in one way or another. The Celts had tonics. The Romans had a variety of methods, including reusable condoms. I'll give you a second to let the full horror of that sink in. Anyway, the point is that almost as soon as people figured out sex, they're figuring out how to have it without also having to raise a child. Now, there are perfectly reasonable reasons for this that go beyond, I'm not really the parent type. Think about what we've been speaking about for pretty much the whole of our story. We've been talking about income inequality, limited resources, and widespread poverty, right? In the late Roman era, it was getting so bad that the remains of the Romano-British were smaller and less healthy than their Iron Age ancestors. Well, things weren't rosy in the Anglo-Saxon times either. What with the tithes, the food rent, and the changing climate, life was tough. And having a lot of kids around would make life even harder. How are you going to feed them all? And if you start having too many kids, there probably wouldn't be enough resources to keep all your children healthy and alive. It's an ugly situation. This wasn't a new problem. For much of human history, people were dealing with limited resources. And while there were some exceptions, many cultures had to keep their fertility in check. And the Anglo-Saxons were not one of the exceptions. So how did the Anglo-Saxons handle it? Well, as you recall, most of their medicines were plant and food based. And this situation was no different. There were a surprising number of foods that would have functioned as herbal abortives. Chief among them was pennyroyal. Hell, one of the Anglo-Saxon cooking experiments I did called for pennyroyal. It's all over the place. So there's a good chance that the Anglo-Saxons were using methods of controlling their population just like people have been doing for pretty much the entirety of human history. But you won't have a civilization for very long unless you start having babies. So let's talk about how the Anglo-Saxons handled childbirth. We don't have a ton of records to go on regarding this, largely because there was a lost section of Bald's Leech Book, and typically OBGYN issues were contained within that section. So even by Anglo-Saxon standards, our knowledge of this is pretty dim, For instance, we don't know how the father was involved. Was Unferth taking an active role? Or was he in the waiting room with a cigar and some whiskey and his friends? If I had to guess, I'd say it was almost certainly not the waiting room scenario. There weren't any cigars, and more importantly, Anglo-Saxon women were tough, and they had access to weaponry. I'm just saying. So here's what we know. First, if you're preggers, you shouldn't eat anything salty or sweet. You shouldn't eat pork. You shouldn't eat any fatty animals, nor should you drink beer or get drunk. On top of that, you shouldn't travel by road or ride too much on horseback, otherwise the child will be born prematurely. Now, the prescription against booze is medically sound, and pork can carry with it some pretty rough diseases if not cooked properly. But nothing fattening, salty, or sweet? That's just mean. Also... With the restrictions on travel, the lawyer in me wants to circumvent them by having hordes of pregnant women traveling through the woods on foot, just off of the road. But the truth of it is, they probably just thought that too much walking or riding a horse could lead to trouble. Now, the expecting mother should also avoid eating nuts, lest the child be born stupid. She should also avoid eating the flesh of any male animal, otherwise the child will be born deformed. Seriously, this Anglo-Saxon pregnancy thing sounds like an absolute drag. You can't eat anything. However, there were certain things that a pregnant woman could drink. For example, if she wanted to have a boy, she and her husband could have a drink made from the dried womb of a hare. It's not as good as ale, but given her diet restrictions, I think she'd be happy to be able to drink anything. But she should take care to make sure that her husband also drinks the potion. Otherwise, the child will be born a hermaphrodite. Now, later on in the pregnancy, there were ways to determine whether or not she was having a boy or a girl. The rule was, if the womb was carried high, it was a boy. If it was carried low, it was a girl. And that's a superstition that's carried into our modern age. Now, if she's come full term and the baby's being reluctant, fun fact here, I was one of those reluctant babies, well, she was supposed to boil the lower part of a wild parsnip in equal amounts of milk and water, and then drink the potion and eat the parsnip. She was also supposed to bind another parsnip against her thigh and genitals, along with hensbane and coriander seed. Though once the child was born, she needed to remove the herbs, otherwise apparently all her plumbing would come out. And here again, we see something that's tempting to call magic. The parsnip, its shape, its location, it all seems rather magical, and it really wouldn't have had any medicinal benefit. But we don't have a clear indication of how it was seen by the patient. It might've just been a medical placebo. Who knows? But the moral of the story here is that Kate Middleton should thank her lucky stars that she won't have to have a root and some herbs strapped to her bits. Now, in the event that the child is born prematurely, they were supposed to take the root of a squirting cucumber, boil it down to a third, and then wash the child with it. What that was supposed to do? I don't know. But it is a pretty strange cure, if you ask me. Something to keep in mind with all of this is diet. I spent a long time talking about food in this series because... Frankly, I think it's all important, and it applies here too. Namely, there's something that's generally lacking in the Anglo-Saxon diet. Iron. They had a pretty low iron intake, and as a result, they would have had trouble with their blood, and would have had quite a few problems with pregnancy. For example, sometimes there were issues with the afterbirth, and the Leech book shows that the Anglo-Saxons were prepared for that. They would either boil old bacon fat in water and then flush everything out, or they would boil brook lime and mallow leaves in ale and then have the patient drink it when hot. So at least now she gets to drink ale. And hopefully she survives. We also see in the Leech book that there were miscarriages. And given the relative health of the Anglo-Saxons and their diet, miscarriages were probably rather common. And in the case of a miscarriage, the patient was to be given a potion of brook lime and pennyroyal that had been boiled in milk and water. She was to drink it twice a day until she'd recovered. And here again, we see pennyroyal used as a purgative. But the reality is that given their relative health and condition, pregnancy was pretty dangerous and a practitioner in general could do little more than provide some level of confidence and comfort and then be ready with some remedies should things go badly and just hope things work out. Now, something that struck me while I was reading the Leech book was that while we only have scattered references to OBGYN issues, the Leech book mentions them in a very matter of fact way. It's a common instinct to assume that all throughout history, society has gotten the vapors when talking about women's issues. But the reality is that for the vast majority of human civilization, it was just a part of life and it wasn't as terrifying or gross as the Victorians would have you believe. And it appears that the Anglo-Saxon practitioners were quite comfortable with the human condition. And we can see that displayed clearly in how they address the issue of women's menstrual cycles. There were cures for suppressed periods that included hot baths, potions, a plastering salve to be applied directly. And it even specifically mentioned that the physician should discuss with the patient her usual timing so as to ensure that she actually requires treatment. Now, the use of a hot bath might sound familiar to you, but the thing that jumped out to me was the frankness of the instruction. It seems to tell us a lot about the Anglo-Saxons and how they viewed women and women's health, though I should note that it might just tell us about the drafter and not the culture at large. And just in case you were starting to think that the Anglo-Saxons were a bit enlightened with their approach to women, let me tell you what they did if a woman's flow was too great. They'd break out one of my favorite cures, horse dung. They'd burn it over hot coals and have the woman stand astride the burning fresh horse dung until she was sweating profusely. Outstanding. And with that return to horse dung, I'm bringing this foray into medicine to a close. In short, there's a surprising amount of feces and what appears to be magic in there. But there's an even greater amount of material that would have provided actual medicinal benefit. So we should take care when we move forward in this series and start talking about kings to remember that our ancestors were not stupid people and they were doing the best that they could with what was available. And all in all, they were doing a pretty good job of it. Now before I let you go, I want to read to you a letter that I got from Sergeant Carlin from the U.S. military. She writes, quote, a little while ago, you read an email from a member in regards to how an Anglo-Saxon feast was very similar to a regimental dinner. I assumed that this member was in the UK military. And as an NCO in the US military, I was surprised to realize that not only how similar our two countries' military traditions were, but also the fact that even though we're a different country and centuries apart, I could see not only the very English roots of the US military, but also the even older Anglo-Saxon traditions at my brigade's last dining in end quote. That's really exciting. And things like this are why I absolutely love the Anglo-Saxon era. While it is very difficult to study, we see the beginnings of so much of our current culture right here in this several hundred-year period. Sergeant Carlin, thank you so much for sharing with us. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British History. And we're also on Twitter. Just head over to at British Podcast. And you can join us on the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums. And we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening.